You found The Paulist, a daily comics analysis podcast project. It's daily so that we can read widely, and it's analysis so we can dig deep. I'm Paul. I'm an English teacher, a literacy researcher, and a comics reader. I'm on Twitter at Tuplai, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. You can find visuals to go with this podcast episode on thepaulist.com. Please subscribe and review to The Paulist on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. That helps us out a lot. Um, today is our Sunday Super Friend, and our comic is Future Quest number four, uh, written by Jeff Parker and illustrated by uh, a variety of illustrators. And we'll be looking at that variety um, and what it means to bring uh, Future Quest uh, into uh, the present day. So let's dig deep. Greetings. Uh, it's good to have you back <laughs> every day. And um, I just wanted to start off by really talking a little bit about the podcast, as I often do. Uh, apologize for that. I hope that um, it always ties in and it doesn't uh, seem self-indulgent. Um, I value you as a listener. I think it's good to clarify what I'm trying to do here. Um, I, I call this comics analysis partly because my project is to learn ways to talk about comics that are different from some of the ways that are out there. Um, not completely different, um, and I'm not trying to claim that I'm doing anything super unique, but um, I do know that there is a world out there where because it is the arts, um, people are considered comics critics. Um, and often what that means, what people think of when they think of criticism, is the idea of reviewing a work and judging its merits as good or bad. Um, and I think if that's the definition of criticism, I wouldn't call myself a comics critic um, because I, I just, um, one, I'm not really um, very good at <laughs> judging things and evaluating them as good and bad. Um, and I, sometimes I don't even know what that means. Uh, sometimes I think the subjectivity that's involved, um, yeah, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm not that interested in um, proclaiming in being a tastemaker. Um, I think there's so much good that's going on in comics right now that uh, I don't want to waste time, to be honest, talking about things that aren't, um, you know, aren't good to my eyes. There's so much that is to be understood and so many layers and levels um, to be talked about, about what is good in comics that um, that's why I want to talk about um, analysis. Um, sometimes uh, I think people who write for comics publications or uh, even who do, do podcasting might be thought of as comics journalists. And I'm not a journalist. I'm not trained as a journalist. I work with enough journalists to know um, the things that are involved in that, in that profession and craft. And I don't presume to, to have that um, ability. And I'm also not trying to report um, things. <laughs> I don't break news here. Um, so I, this podcast isn't meant to be comics journalism either. The, the reason that it's analysis, as I said, is because that I think sometimes what, you know, what I feel is a little missing from the conversation, what I long for and look for, and that I do find, but I, I, it's often um, not the direct intent, or it's just not stated as such. Um, there's so much comics journalism, there's so much comics criticism, uh, but I, I think, again, a lot of that involves preferences and inclinations without necessarily substantiating or providing evidence for um, your subjective taste. And um, I do enjoy the banter of a group of folks sitting around talking about comics and what they like and don't like and what appeals to them and doesn't appeal to them and, and you know, exploring that and all that kind of stuff. That's good podcasting. Um, but sometimes I get frustrated because I, I mean, not 
frustrated, but I'm listening to that stuff and I'm kind of like, why? You know, where besides sort of the thin layer of I like it or I don't like it, you know, what what is it that you're looking at that makes you feel that way? Um, and, and even if it is entirely subjective, to search enough in your in, in what constitutes your subjectivity, I think is at least the task of some of us. And, and I, I don't, you know, fault anybody for enjoying just a fun conversation between some chill chill folks just um, chatting up comics. I'm I'm down with that too. But I I think a lot of times when I'm listening to stuff or reading stuff about comics, that's what I'm hungry for is somebody to not just say I liked it or I didn't like it, but to really substantiate that with um with you know, um, analysis, <laughs> to be honest, that's what I hunger for. That's what I really love hearing. And, um, you know, and as I, as I often say that there are many podcasts that I love and that, um, encourage and inspire me that, um, do do that kind of conversation analysis. Um, it happens a lot in the comics alternative, a podcast you should check out. It happens a lot in robots from tomorrow, another podcast you should check out. It happens a lot in O comics, a podcast that, uh, just ended, uh, that you should check out some great conversations with creators that get analytical on a podcast like orbital and conversation, which I think is going to change depending on how, um, my friend, Chris Thompson, uh, you know, re-envisions his, his future roles. Um, other podcasts that I would point to, I really like the conversations that happen at Wait, Wait, What? Um, if you don't know that one, it's at Wait, What? Podcast. Wait, What? Podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, the Graham McMillan um, and uh, uh, Jeff Lester on that conversation, you know, they, they're just kind of seasoned comic heads. Um, Jeff is closely associated with Brian Hibbs, uh, who's over at the Comics Experience over here. And I think that they have really good substantive conversation. Of course, John Suntress's Word Balloon is really great conversation that's um, deep and substantive. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of other podcasts that I listen to that do it really well. And I, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fail to, I'm going to neglect to mention somebody. In fact, Kieran Gillen, um, you know, he of The Wicked and Divine, uh, who is a great comics writer, um, has a podcast that he recently um, resurrected, and he had a conversation, I think it just came out yesterday, with um, Al Ewing, and it's really interesting to listen to him, kind of in spite of himself and how much he wants to play off that, it's just kind of, you know, a, a relaxed, just uh, ch ch chatter and banter. Uh, he actually inevitably gets um, pretty um, into the weeds of the process with the people that he talks to. Um, it's sort of insider, you know, um, you know, talk among the pros you know it's the kind of um uh you know stuff that you imagine two folks at the studio talking about and that's really interesting and fascinating to listen to so uh, those are places i like to go uh despite all that prelude <laughs> i do have to admit that <clears throat> um even though i try to talk always about books that i sort of don't even have to say or explain that I like it or don't like it because in my analysis there are things that I'm seeing that um, you know uh, are, are great I think today may end up being one of the less favorable analyses that I have to offer um, and that's for future quest number four um, from DC Comics um, it's part of DC's uh, recent uh, launching of uh, you know bringing their partnership with Hanna-Barbera and Hanna-Barbera's properties into fruition. Um, it's been an endeavor, I think, to, to um, really 
put a new twist or a new spin on a lot of old characters. And so Scooby-Doo <laughs> has been doing some interesting team-up stuff for a while and now has this, you know, there's a Flintstones book that's really uh, a, a very different take. There's a Wacky Raceland book. All those I think are worth checking out. But, you know, when I heard about them, I wasn't super uh, excited. I think now that I recognize that there's a sort of like, you know, whatever happened with Afterlife with Archie, this taking of these old nostalgic properties and and putting a modern spin on them, a contemporary spin that um, is a sense, uh, is, is sometimes an ironic self-commentary on, on the ways that those works are kind of enshrined in our nostalgia. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm down with what they're doing. Um, they're really bringing back our Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, really speaking to many of us for whom those were the Saturday morning cartoons, who remember a time when we ate cereals in front of the big box, um, and, and watch those lineups uh, on Saturday mornings or sometimes for some of us every morning. Um, and, um, and, but the one I was most excited about was Future Quest. And it was because when they announced the team of Parker, Shaner, and Belair, uh, Jeff Parker, Evan, Doc, Shaner, and Jordy Belair, um, I was in. <laughs> you used to say any of those three names, uh, but all the three of them in, in combination, and, and I'm in. Um, and that's because um, the work that they did together on Dynamite's Flash Gordon book, which actually the guys from Robots from Tomorrow turned me on to, was just um, so good. So, so, so good. And they um, came together again for the um, Convergence two-issue Shazam, which was one of the few great things to come out of that Convergence event, um, all too short. And then for them to re-team at... Um, you know, at DC for uh, Future Quest number four. I mean, sorry, for Future Quest. I think everybody was excited about that prospect. And it was just the right feel, you know, because there was, um, I'll refer back to this again and again, and then I'll try to put some flesh on it. There was some beautiful warm glow of nostalgia that, um, that sort of tinged all of that Flash Gordon uh, run. And um, it just makes it so worth reading. And if you haven't read that go pick that up it's all collected in kind of an omnibus that's not overwhelmingly priced it's just um quality quality comics um and that warm tinge that warm glow of nostalgia was back again for for shazam which is exactly what that character um wants and needs <laughs> being who he is being that that um faucet character from the you know 1940s who's uh you know, his characters are, are ridiculous if they aren't um, sort of bathed in the sense that this was what comics was and, um, and great because of that. Um, the cleft chin, the sense of adventure, the, uh, the fun, the uh, wry smiles. Yeah, that's just good stuff. And so when they talked about Future Quest IV, um, I'll admit from the outset right off the bat here that I didn't know these characters that well. Uh, not because I never watched them on TV, but because that they're, you know, I was grew up in the 80s. I'm a little bit behind generationally speaking. Um, but there was plenty of reruns of that stuff, and I watched a good deal of Hanna-Barbera cartoons, but not enough that I really kind of, you know, latch onto it and connect to it um, with a, a sort of deep familiarity. Um, that would have to be reserved for people my older brother's age and a little bit older, I think. Um, but with that qualifier, I was really, really interested and really, really excited to see them um, working on these characters, uh, especially knowing that many of them were designed by Alex Toth. And I'm going to talk a little bit about 
um, Toth and his work. And if you don't know Alex Toth's work um, by now, that is another place that I really think that um, you ought to be looking um, because Toth designed many of these characters, maybe most famously Space Ghost, um, but many of the Hanna-Barbera characters in the phase of his career where he worked on animation. And so he brings a style and a sensibility that I think I want to talk about, but that artists like um, Evan Shaner and um, artists like Chris Somney and, um, and others uh, seem to have drawn some inspiration from. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to sort of lump a bunch of people in the same camp who are actually um, very distinct from each other, but I do think that there is a spirit of what made Toth great um, in those artists. And to have them concentrate their work on these long runs of, of very well-received and popular books as a sort of overall tribute to Toth is a, is a kind of a, a very exciting thing for us who are, um, you know, kind of in, in awe of of the uh of uh you know his mighty totefulness um and then actually as the news trickled out about the book there was also news that steve rude was involved and i'm a big fan of steve rude's nexus so um uh rude and baron of course and um i just thought that was awesome you know very different style from uh shaner uh but i felt like the kind of like you know i just feel like everything from Steve Rude is a blast. You know, it's sort of like a very sort of 70s, late sort of late 70s um, slickness, um, <laughs> but a blast. And I, that's what I feel about Nexus, and, and I thought that that would be a really cool thing for him to bring to this book. So uh, the creators, awesome. The characters I knew at, were cool. The idea that they might be updated and brought together, interesting. I love that they introduced this um, Deva Sumati character who works for Internation, provides a bit of the diversity that that line of characters really needs, strings together the you know wide variety of um, archetypes that are being brought together. Although, you know, after reading the first issue, I was sort of like, uh-oh, this characterization of Dr. Zinn, this sort of wicked Asian uh, yellow peril legacy character, I'm, I, was a little, I was a little nervous about that. Um, Future Quest number one was awesome, and um, I loved its storytelling. I loved the way that characters were introduced, um, and it was like it was like you took all of the characters that um, I had a vague recollection of, and you suddenly made me remember them uh, really, really well. Things that I didn't know that I remembered about them suddenly um, they were very alive. Haji was very alive. Johnny was very alive. Um, you know, Doctor Quest very alive. And, uh, and when Space Ghost appeared, I just, you know, I just pretty much fell over. It was just so cool. Um, by the second issue, I started to feel what has sort of now full bore taken over <laughs> as, as a feeling about the book. So, and, and I should say that first issue um, had that Parker Shaner Belair um, connection that made those other books that I talked about so good. Um, and then it had a few pages of Steve Root. I, I don't know if it was like sort of five or seven pages. And it seemed like they were very intentionally planned as far as when Steve Root would take over. It was, it was parts that um, were involving different characters and stuff like that. Um, and I think it worked really well. Even the parts where, you know, he was drawing a, a continuation of the scenes that Shaner had been illustrating. Again, that sort of Steve Root like blast um, 
was 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 uh yeah was fun i i was like i can be down with this i can understand the um you know the the challenges of producing a monthly book of that kind of quality um if you're creators like um like shaner and and bel-air and and parker so um i was all in after issue one i gotta tell you after issue four i'm having trouble <laughs> I, I don't know i'm 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 still on the train but i've got a foot uh <laughs> you know it's it's going full speed but i've i've got a foot standing outside the, i'm holding on to the bar standing at the door uh making sure the conductor doesn't see me <laughs> as i anxiously decide whether or not i uh stay on and truth of the matter is that i'm i'm kind of lost that there are too many characters going on. Uh, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, Future Quest is, of course, not the title of any Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Instead, it's Jeff Parker um, and, create, and company trying to um, create an event that reintroduces um, many of the Hanna-Barbera action-adventure characters from that period of time, including Johnny Quest, including Space Ghost, including um, the uh, Herculoids, including um, Frankenstein Jr., uh, into a massive kind of event. Uh, oh, Birdman, I should say. Birdman is the one that... Um, uh, I can't say Birdman without hearing Shaq and Charles Barkley in my head anymore. <laughs> but um, but uh, Birdman is the one that Steve Rude was sort of um, lending his talents and, and specific style to, which was, I thought, a, a perfect match. But um, I just feel like... Um, we're jamming so many characters in. I've lost hold of the plot. I'm not entirely firm on the enemy or the villain. Uh, there's an Omicron creature. There's, um, as I said, Dr. Zinn and the, the fear organization. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, maybe it's, again, my lack of knowledge from, um, from the cartoons. But um, it, I don't know. It seems like it's starting to feel like we're ticking off checking off all the boxes to uh, introduce the characters and the universe and we're losing something um, in the story um, you know uh, who is the who is the enemy are these vortexes anything more than a gimmick to bring the characters together or are they actually part of a, a larger cohesive story that I want to invest in uh, who, who are the all these characters and are you going to give me the origins for all of them if I'm not familiar uh, you know, with them from my Saturday morning cartoons. And, and, and we have a lot of different archetypes and a lot of different contexts that these characters seem to fit into and they're all sort of being mashed together in this world. And uh, I don't know if it's working yet. Um, I, I guess I'm... Uh, I guess the high bar that was set by the first issue that was kind of continued into the second issue um, really fell apart for me in the third issue when... Um, it seemed like Shaner took a break from duties. Uh, all along the way, he's been sort of spot-filled in. But um, then uh, issue three had a, an origin story for Birdman and an origin story sort of, of of sorts for the Herculoids, and it just seemed like it was going in so many different places. Um, Aaron Lepresti's art was in there, and he's always serviceable as an artist. He, he has his talents. Steve Rude's art is in there. Um, uh, Roy Randall's art is also populating these pages, um, but it's just started to feel a little bit too much like, uh, I don't know if the band is playing together or has had enough practice time. Um, 
And so I'm having trouble with this book. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think about as I read it is what is the purpose of bringing all of these Hanna-Barbera characters back besides the sort of, um, you know, crass sales um, pitch that it is. And what, what exactly is the appeal that um, is meant to draw us into it? And, and no doubt part of that appeal is nostalgia. And I think a lot about nostalgia, you know, about what kind of nostalgia are we hitting and why does it hit us so much? Why is it that, um, you know, half of the big budget films that we see in Hollywood are bringing back and, and, and resurrecting uh, this or that franchise, uh, ones that we didn't even know needed to be brought back? Um, and, 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 and what is it that we are, um, you know, sort of <laughs> uh, obsessively coming back to when we're coming back to these pop culture, um, you know, um, nostalgia resurrections? And um, there's a sense of nostalgia being this kind of yearning, right? This warm yearning for, for the past or for home. But, um, you know, people who theorize about nostalgia acknowledge that the term itself and, and also that sense is actually a, a sort of pathology, um, originally conceived as a pathology. Um, there's one theorist, Christopher Lash, who talks a lot about nostalgia as a, really a, um, a, 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 an attachment to a idealized vision of the past that um, is actually runs counter to, to, to actual, actual memory. You know, it's like our nostalgia sort of, um, as I said before, bathes everything in a warm glow that actually keeps us from being um, properly analytical and um, critical about history, about memory. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's kind of a fixation on, on the past that's usually a result of a sense of loss and a fixation on that loss. And it's often an aggrieved fixation. You know, it's sort of like the present always fails in the face of this um, image of the past that we've become very enamored with. And so we uh, we are also disconnecting the, the, the past from its continuity with the present uh, when we become nostalgic. And so I think there's some ways in which, um, you know, it's that Future Quest and, and Hanna-Barbera uh, being resurrected by DC, it's not nostalgia in itself. Nostalgia is the feeling that we bring to these uh, properties. What it's trying to do is it's trying to bank on nostalgia as a um, uh, you know sort of a diving board from which to do a lot of very different things um, that uh, I think are sometimes ironic uh, or satirical or sometimes I think in the case of this book are um, I don't know I don't know what <laughs> um, you know sort of uh, like these vortexes uh, you know f sort of flying uh, all these various um, uh, you know, memories into our present day and trying to re-spark the, uh, the, the connection that we have with these characters into a, a together universe where we can re-experience them in new ways. Uh, that seems to be the goal. Um, and it's not really, it's not sort of, um, you know, uh, burying them in amber in the past. It's actually really trying to bring them into the present. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways that I think you can do that. And the fact that these things exist in nostalgia can um, have a kind of, you know, purpose. I think Scooby, right, is this, uh, is this Casey Kasem, you know, past that we have uh, long moved past. But when we bring it back to the present day um, and then we <laughs> make it a zombie thing or something like that, 
we um, we offer a kind of commentary on that memory. Um, and even, uh, you know, kind of last time Space Ghost came back with this um, Space, Ghost, Space Ghost Coast to Coast Adult Swim TV show where, you know, you took the old animation and you made it into a, you know, a late night talk show. There's a kind of parodic um, bringing back that um, that plays off of this old static thing, staying old and static, but being recontextualized. Uh, all that is really interesting to me as pop culture. But it seems like if um, Parker, Shaner, and Belair are on this book, I guess what I saw Future Quest as was a, a, an actual earnest attempt to recapture that which made this old thing, you know, it, it, we're not ironically playing with the idea of this past thing coming back. This is an afterlife with Archie, you know, this is Archie. This is trying to um, put a, a today contemporary spin on the, the, the love and passion that was inspired by these characters originally. Um, and I should say something about that, that love and the passion, you know, about what it is about these characters. Um, and to me, there's a beautiful simplicity about many of these characters that, you know, of course, you know, all of them, Johnny Quest and, and uh, you know, um, uh, Birdman and, you know, Space Ghost, we kind of recognize things that came from comics and adventure books and the pulps and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, your Doc Savage and your... Um, you know, your uh, late 19th century um, adventure fiction, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, that kind of stuff. You recognize that stuff in, in it, and, um, and it's, you know, maybe a spirit that you can imagine still, still lives, um, is still kind of wanted and loved. And I think that was one of the things that was a, a, an Alex Toth um, specialty, you know, part of his splendor. And, you know, I actually, let me qualify this too. Um, being a Toad fan, I picked up IDW's um, Genius Illustrated and uh, Genius Isolated books. It's a three-volume set of these big hardcovers that kind of beautifully display and, and write about Toad's work. But the third volume that I don't have is the Genius Animated, which is really about Toad's animated work. And so I, I know less about this area of um, his talents, but I know enough to know that part of what he did was he applied what he did so well in comics, which was this um, wonderful simplicity. And I think that was so great and so important for animation because, you know, the thing about designing animated characters is you draw them so that, uh, you know, whatever, 30 or 100 other artists can, um, can, can redraw them uh, off of your model sheets with consistency. And Toth designed these characters that were so striking, you know, the, the black shirt, uh, the, the sort of space ghost shape and silhouette, this simplicity that um, allowed for consistency and recognition of these characters. You know, if you kind of want a sense of, uh, of it um, as a comics fan, if you don't know too, Toth too well, you can go to YouTube and search for um, Darwin Cook and Alex Toth, and there's this brief bit from a convention where he and uh, somebody else on a panel are talking about the appeal of Toth to them that at one point, um, uh, Cook, Darwin Cook talks about, and you know, you, you, of course, this is most meaningful if you know Darwin Cook's style and its appeal, but um, Cook was talking about growing up as a kid loving um, Neil Adams and just being really into the kind of detail that um, Adams put onto the page. And then, um, and then seeing Toth and being initially 
unimpressed. But um, but he, you know he says there's there's the songs that you hear and right away you, you know that you'll like them and a week later they're still catchy you know they're still in your head. But then there's the songs that you hear and at first you you know they're just um, strange to you and yet you just can't get them out of your head and then you go back to them again and again and those are the ones that last you know for decades in your in your consciousness and he says that's what Alex Totes work was like it was like at first glance it's like nah you know doesn't have that Neil Adams you know kind of uh, 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 realism and, and, and grittiness that I like and then uh, Cook just came back again and again and again to Toth and um, Toth wound up being uh, massively influential on what we know as this uh, massively influential artist. And in the same way, I think he's created characters insofar as he was involved. I'm not sure which exact uh, you know set of these sets of these characters Toth was himself responsible for. But um, there's a sense in these Hanna Barbera characters that there is a simplicity that um, again not only allows for animators to draw them with a, con a consistency, but um, but 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 lets them as Cook describes it, uh, you know, appeal to us in a way that we see ourselves in them, um, appeal to sort of deeper core parts of us, and um, and I think that's what these characters do. I mean, you know, despite the whatever the the colonialism that is that is Johnny and Haji um, in the cartoon form, you know that. In the first issue, when um, Shaner draws them, you know, flying through the air, there's just something about that that is very hard to shake. <laughs> it's hard for that not to bring a smile to your face. Um, and a whole lot of that has to do with the simplicity. Um, and I think part of the problem, the difficulty I'm having with the book is that in trying to bring them all together, in doing this job of, um, you know, this really yeoman's work of, you know, that Jeff, Sh Sh Jeff Parker is doing, of trying to write this big event that is, you know, sufficient as a story that sort of um, at the same time brings in this many characters who are not just characters, but they're characters who I think weren't necessarily meant to fit together in the common world this easily, uh, or not in one story this easily, or tonally, um, s s maybe in subtle ways, but quite different from each other. Uh, definitely in terms of genre, um, you know, uh, appealing to different sets of expectations from us and trying to smash them together into one world with one story, with one whatever main driving conflict or several conflicts that are meant to come together. And I, and I don't know if it had to do with schedule or um, or deadlines or uh, whatever, but um, suddenly the sort of unified, you know, trifecta, <laughs> triumvirate of uh, Parker, Shaner, and Belair has become Parker and Lepresti and Parker and Parker. <laughs> and uh, as of issue three, I think, uh, definitely four, uh, Colors by Hi-Fi, uh, which is, a, I think, a husband and wife team Brian and Christy Miller and uh, and I think there are others too but uh, definitely the two of them who are great you know they're great colorists they're um they're very capable I think they've taught the the, the comics coloring community a lot of things um but I'll be honest they're not Jordy Beller <laughs> you know nobody's Jordy Beller and maybe Jordy Beller isn't even Jordy Beller you know um uh 
actually, yeah. You know what Jordi Belair is? Jordi Belair is a is a is genius, and she is a genius who, um, as she said in many interviews and has talked about in many articles, uh, knows how to steal. You know, and I don't mean that in a um, in a sort of intellectual theft kind of way, but I just would love to just um, hang out with Jordy. Oh, by the way, c- who, congratulations on uh, Jordy Belair's engagement with um, longtime uh, mate Declan Shalvey. Um, but uh, their their story is really beautiful, by the way. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I would just love to be a fly on the wall as Jordy Belair and Declan Shalvey take a walk and she pauses at a moment at the horizon of a cityscape and takes in what's going on in terms of the colors she sees in front of her or watches films and um, takes in because she just has this heightened awareness. I am terrible about colors. I mean, anybody looking at any of my outfits can tell right away that I have no idea what goes with what. Um, but my wife uh, and my daughter, in, by contrast, um, and this is so stereotypical, but they just kind of see shades and how they go together and what emotions they um, they affect in ways that I'm just sort of numb and, and deaf and blind to. Um, blind, yes, that's the right one. Um, but I feel like Jordi Belair's sensitivity and awareness and ability to channel all that stuff in terms of colors is just utter genius. Um, one thing she talks about is she talks about um, Disney coloring and um, the kind of warmth and the stuff that's done with lighting in Disney coloring that, you know, all colors are aware of. But, I mean, for the speed at which she, she does, the, the volume of work that she does and the talents that she applies and the range that she has, she just must have kind of special genius you know that the great ones have that the dave stewart's have and the you know the matt wilson's have and stuff like that so um one of the things that she's said about um coloring shaner and uh this collaboration with parker is that um you know there's this the part of her sense of this nostalgia is that there's this warmth that's created um and uh, some of it has to do with lighting and some of it has to do with hue and saturation and other things that i don't understand but <laughs> but a lot of it is uh jordy doing what she does so well which is that um i think i've heard her say something to the effect before of you know sometimes our memories um what the way that we remember things in our memories is not actually what they look like. Like, you know, sometimes you remember the, the cartoons of your childhood and then you go back and see them in um, on TV in a replay, uh, a rerun. <laughs> that's what that's called, <laughs> of something that um, has you haven't watched in 20 years. And it looks just like way worse than you remember it you know like when i go back and watch uh dragon ball or gi joe it's just so much worse that i remember it um but in our memories uh in our nostalgia you know we've um again coded it and bathed it in this warmth and her colors are you know uh, this this awesome halfway point between the um the kind of uh color scheme that uh, you would have seen in the Hanna-Barbera cartoon or old Flash Gordon or whatever and our, um, and what we've done in our memories um, to bathe them in the warmth of nostalgia. Um, and I'm going to put up these two pages in contrast, but I think there's two, two pages that I can show from I- issue one and issue four that kind of show the, the contrast between uh, what she's done with the colors in issue one 
and a very similar set of scenes and um, what Hi-Fi Hi has done with the colors. And uh, there's nothing in the issue for colors that um, is like poor <laughs> or, or incompetent. Um, it just doesn't quite have the same kind of warmth that the, um, the Jordi Belair colors have. And if you're looking at them right now with me, um, and I'll sort of post the, the two pages side by side um, on thepaulist.com, you can see that the page from issue one, you know, there, there's actually less rendering of the clouds. Um, Hi-Fi in issue four has rendered the clouds a little bit more. Um, and I don't know if this is Shaner um, and what kind of attention he gave to drawing the clouds, if it's purely a matter of the practical necessities of the storytelling on this page compared to the other page. But you can see that um, in the, in the uh, Bel Air page, she's knocked out the line. Uh, you know, and it's kind of draw. It's kind of knocked out in the second panel of the issue four one. But there's, I guess they call it a color hold. But it's like the 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 black line has been recolored in blue um, on the on the middle panel of um, of issue four. And so the and then in the top panel, it's it's straight. Um, I don't know. You could think of it as tinged and edged with shadows, or you could think of it as they just left the black in there. You look at the issue one, and it's a cloud that's lined with white, and it's sort of this this um, contrast, uh, this light contrast of the blue of the sky, the white that lines the cloud, and then the blue of the cloud that makes it feel like open sky. You know, it makes it feel like this sense that um, the sun is indeed reflecting off of something. And really, you know, there's not a lot of done stuff done here with like gradients or, or anything like that but but there's some somehow it just um has you know sort of by by removing some of that line or so much of that line giving you this sense of a of a flowing and um you know a natural atmospheric sky um and then to look at the way that the sun comes in from the windows on um on the faces of the characters you know i mean of course Shainer has the luxury. This is issue one. We don't have to move the story forward by having eight characters all in the plane. It's just the one, you know, just the one character, right? Um, but uh, what's this guy's name? I always forget. The one in the red shirt, that's totally what you think of when you think of Johnny Quest. <laughs> Besides Johnny Quest and Haji, of course. Uh, I forgot his name. Anyway, <laughs> um, shows what I know. Um, but, but you just kind of look at how the shadows are cast on, uh, on not just his face, but all all the faces in this scene on the plane. In issue four, you know, Hi-Fi has the thing that colorists often do. And in fact, the thing that, um, you know, you could say that, you could see that Bel Air does in other instances when a certain mood is trying to be created where there's just these sort of blocks of shadow. It's kind of a two color thing going on on most of their faces, two or three. There's a, a sort of base color, there's a light color, and then there's a shadow color. And they're sort of placed in ways that work, you know, it, they work. You look at this page and you're like, that coloring is good. It's competent. You know, it's um, competent is damning faint praise, but it, it's good It's good comics coloring. But I go back to issue one and I look at this Belair page that I keep comparing it to. And um, there is uh, actually maybe not that many more, um, uh, you know, variations maybe even the same amount of variation. But there's something in this phase that looks 
like those shadows are not uh, are are maybe they're curved, maybe they're rendered in a certain way, maybe they um, respect some of the the um, the lines, uh, the contours of of the face. Um, but you know, same thing of the the chair that this just simple blue chair. One is a blue chair. The other is a blue chair. <laughs> They're both blue chairs in an airplane. But yeah, something in that in the way that that's colored that I don't know enough about because I don't know enough about coloring um, makes the issue one have that feeling of just being bathed in a, in in the the warm sun. That is part of the sense of nostalgia, and that is I don't know clunkier in issue four. And if I can extrapolate, probably unfairly, <laughs> from what I've just said about the color, I feel like similar things are going on throughout the story. Um, the dialogue in the, the same page on issue four seems to be about advancing the plot and exposition because that's what Jeff Parker has to do. He's got to take these, you know, various, many, many, many <laughs> seems um, stories of, um, you know, little sec sections of the plot, little. Um, lines of story that are running in all these various directions and weave them together and so you know there's this kind of oversimplified false characterization about dialogue that it's too easy to dichotomize between dialogue that's for characterization and dialogue that's for plot you know dialogue that's like about showing you what a person is like and dialogue that is um uh exposition it's it's not that clean you know what i mean especially with <clears throat> excuse me with capable and good writers like Parker. Um, but <laughs> having said that, in issue uh, in, is in the page that I'm sampling in issue one, you know, that's not what your father meant by going in close for observation quest. You know, <laughs> um, sorry, race, that's his name. Sorry, race, I'll focus. Oh, wh what if we find a, a vortex like the last time with those killer plants? You know, <laughs> there is, um, you know, lightweight, uh, plot and and exposition going on, but really this is some really good characterization. You know, it's a sense of like race as this as the sort of responsible silver maned character that we remember, um, who has his sort of own sense of um, adventure, his own sort of doc savageness, and then Johnny being Johnny and and that kind of zest in his eyes. Um, in issue four on the same page, and again, I know it's kind of unfair to to sample this, um, you know, two apples and oranges kind of pages. But, yeah, but your dad says this is all to go look at cave paintings. Yeah, we like to go to places really fast with a laboratory. That's the kind of thing we tend to do a lot. It's kind of, it just feels like um, a little heavy-handed, um, a little bit more like, let me tell you who we are and what we're like, and you know, because because we have to do it really efficiently and quickly because, you know, we got this much story to tell and this much time and plus, oh yeah, we had to do a, a an all Birdman fifteen pages and an all Herculoids fifteen pages and so now we have to race, race. We had to race, race to um to get to who the, the what the heck the Omnicron is or whatever. Um yeah. So I mean I I I think you can hear um, the critique that um, is coming around for me and maybe it's not uh, it's not about the competence of these creators they're all awesome uh, maybe it's the situation of being pressed to create a new future <laughs> out of these many nostalgic um, and what we want to do is kind of enshrined pieces of our past 
um, this is a future quest, you know? It is trying to scribe a, um, a viable uh, interlocking world, um, pulling and drawing together many, many things in the past. And that's incredibly hard to do. And I think uh, in issue one, and maybe at the outset it's a little bit easier to do this, um, you know, he started laying out the pieces and they looked really inviting. But uh, for me, at issue four, there have been so many pieces and so many um, different uh, guides through them in terms of aesthetic and style and all that kind of stuff that, that um, it's kind of breaking apart for me a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's the trouble that I'm having with it. Now, having said that, um, I, I have some future quests of my own. One, I need to learn more about color. <laughs> um, you know, watching stuff like Strip Panel Naked where... Um, Hassan has talked about uh, Jordi Belair's colors on Pretty Deadly. That's helpful. Um, I actually try to, I do try to read pretty extensively about color palettes and, and all that kind of stuff, but I'm definitely um, batting in my, uh, out of my wheelhouse to, <laughs> to uh, mix metaphors in a distressing fashion, but I'm definitely uh, out of my league talking about colors. So that's a future quest for me. Two is to learn more about animation, and whenever it becomes affordable, I'll pick up um, Toth, uh, Toth uh, Genius Animated, and uh, you know, look at that kind of stuff. Um, look back more at these cartoons. And third, I think I'm gonna keep reading Future Quest. I'm not jumping off the train. I want to see how Parker um, strings it all together. I want to see how much of the creative team that I, um, you know, was so enamored with sticks around in the book. Um, I'm I'm willing. Uh, I think they've earned that trust. Um, but uh, I got to confess that this sort of um, dipstick measure and how I'm doing in the book at this point, eh, well, let's just say I wish I had a jetpack so I could fly and catch and, uh, and keep up um, with whatever the heck is going on. Um, so, yeah, that's my feeling about Future Quest. Uh, look, I, I don't know. I, maybe this is not that satisfying a, um, an analysis, but um, I, I am, as I say, in ex this is an experiment. This is an experiment for me in how to talk about comics and how we can um, give our best thought and, um, you know, a, a generous effort to trying to understand and um, grasp the, the appeal, um, our subjectivities about the medium. And so I appreciate you listening, and um, your feedback is always welcome and invited. Um, one commenter, the prize ham, whoever you are, if you're out there listening, thank you for your iTunes review. It was incredibly kind. I had to thank um, a number of creators who have um, retweeted um, when I have tweeted at them with uh, episodes of my podcast, um, including uh, Matthew Holm, who was really kind about... Um, about the episode I did about uh, he and, and uh, Jennifer Holmes' uh, Sunny Side Up. And, uh, and yeah, Mike Allred retweeted m my thing <laughs> about, um, about uh, Silver Surfer. That was super nice. So thanks for that. Um, and for all of you out there who are spreading the word about the podcast, thank you. Um, so this has been The Paulist. Tomorrow I'll be back talking about America Town from Boom Studios, um, comic about uh, sort of a sci-fi take on immigration and um and we're going to keep going i think there's going to be a break in this foreseeable future maybe in a week or so i'm going to take a what i'm calling a research break to uh, work on my research a little bit more 
um, to just be able to be fully devoted to that. Um, but I'll be back. I'll be back very soon because this is such a good thing for me. So thanks for listening and let's keep reading. Thank you.